The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. A reading from John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 43 through 51. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. All praise be to Christ. Thank you, Michael. Well, uh, I, am, I love to preach, and I love God's word, and uh, the time that I've spent with this passage this week has been, for me, uh, very challenging and convicting, uh, and also just filled me with just enthusiasm. So I'm going to just jump into this. Um, this sermon basically has, we're going to think of it as having two parts. I'm going to focus on Philip and then focus on Nathaniel, these two disciples who are called to follow Jesus and who do. And in the process of this, I, I, I want to ask you, as I ask a lot of times, a lot of Sundays, I'll just be very uh, overt in saying this, is I want to ask you to let your guard down and come along in the things we're going to talk about. Because one of the things that we, we have to talk about in this passage is how our culture uh, interacts with the concept of truth. Uh, and and, and it's, it's a mistake for any of us to say, well, that's how the culture does it. I do it differently. Because even though you may be different than a lot of the prevailing voices of the culture, we're, we soak in the culture we're in. Uh, and all of us are affected by it and shaped by it. Okay, so, so this is not an us versus them message. This is a let's all let our guard down and say, Lord, search my heart and help me, help me, uh, to know how to apply this. Uh, because, because I think I'm going to say some things, at least as I was writing them down, they were strong for me. Um, and so I may say, say some things that sound uh, strong to you, and let's lean into that. So first I want to unpack the passage to get a little bit of the context and set the stage so that we know what's happening here, because that's a value for us. So what's happening is this is, if you notice, this is John chapter 1. So this is happening really early uh, in the Gospel of John, the first chapter. In fact, this is happening right after um, John the Baptist has baptized Jesus. And uh, so what happened here is, is, what happened just before this passage is Jesus called his first two disciples. One of them was Andrew. Andrew happened to be a disciple of John the Baptist who was with John the Baptist when John the Baptist was baptizing. That's a lot of Baptists. Um, was baptizing, and John told his disciples, I'm not the end game here. I'm here to prepare the way for the one who was coming, the Messiah, the Christ, and this is him. And so Andrew, who was John the Baptist's disciple, 
left John the Baptist with John the Baptist's blessing to follow Jesus, and Andrew went and got his brother, who is Simon Peter. So these are the first two disciples. Then, when we get to today's passage, what's happening is Jesus is calling the next two disciples, which are Philip and Nathaniel. You can think of Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River by John the Baptist as kind of the starting pistol for the earthly ministry of Jesus. Uh, this was when, this was the, the kind of the first thing he did, and then everything flew out of that. And so this is really early on. In our passage, what's happening is Jesus is making his way from the Jordan River. He's walking back up north to Galilee along the Jordan River, and on the way he meets Philip, uh, who presumably knew Andrew and Peter because they came from the same small town, and he calls Philip to follow him, and Philip does. He's persuaded by what he hears, and he agrees to go. And then he also goes to get his brother, Nathaniel, who we also know by the name Bartholomew. So when you're thinking of the 12 apostles, Philip and Nathaniel, Nathaniel is also called Bartholomew. So there it is. Incidentally, I, I want to point this out. This is precisely how the gospel of Jesus Christ is spread throughout the world. Is it's how the church has grown to what it is today, and it's this. It's one person who believes telling another person, and the Lord, by his Holy Spirit, working through that proclamation. That being said, we're a young church. We're entering our second quarter of life as a congregation that meets here in Cool Springs. We will probably, no, we will never be the church that is doing Facebook blasts, telling people, leave your church and come to ours because it's cooler. We'll, we'll, we just won't be doing that. We, we won't be doing big mailings and big billboards because the way we want to grow is we want our congregation to invite our friends who don't have a church home. Uh, if they're new to the area, if they're unbelievers, if they're searching. And my commitment to you as a pastor is I will do my level best to never embarrass you from the pulpit for taking the risk of bringing a friend to church by saying something stupid about how everybody should be Christians in a particular kind of a way or how everybody should vote or how everybody should school their kids. I just I won't do that because I want to respect the risk you take when you invite somebody to come. That's how we're going to grow. We're going to grow in the way that the church has always grown, one person telling another person about Christ and inviting them into that community. So that's what's happening here. In fact, it's what I'm doing in this room today, really, is, is I'm telling you the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's an amazing thing to see how the Holy Spirit has worked through this supremely ordinary means of communication. So that's what happened, uh, and that's a model for us as we think about moving forward. So, Philip, let's kind of talk about his part in this story and then get into Nathaniel's part of the story. And we'll start by way of a story about me. I grew up in uh, Indiana, about an hour north of Indianapolis in a little small town. And I grew up in the country part of the small town. Uh, so I lived on a dirt road surrounded by bean fields and woods and cornfields. And the world was just mine to explore. My brother and I growing up there, uh, we, were, we were farm kids. Just, we were always covered in, in dirt. And it was, it was a fun way to live. And about a mile up the road from our house, there was this gravel road that we lived on. There was this little lane that turned off into a field. And about 100 yards down that lane was an old Civil War-era cemetery. 
And it was a place that I would go to regularly. I would go to that cemetery regularly. And I had all sorts of amazing places to play, uh, places where my imagination could run wild. I had a creek, I had a woods, I had a hay barn, I had lots of open space. Um, and in those places, that was where I would become the hero who saves the girl. That's where I would be Indiana Jones or the Karate Kid. That's where I would be the cowboy with the dead aim. You know, that's, that was where that all happened. But, but when I would go to the cemetery, that graveyard, and these old headstones, it was, it was a different feeling. Even as a kid, it was a different feeling. And what I felt was I felt the weight of the past, you know, like I was stepping into something that had a deep sense of history that had unfolded and then been buried beneath me. And even as a kid, I felt that. It felt mysterious and it felt very real and I felt connected to it, but I also felt like I was not in charge of the narrative that was happening in that place. So, have you ever been in places like that where you just feel kind of a, a reverence for what it is? There's a, there's a verse in Jeremiah Jeremiah 6.16, where the prophet tells the people of God, stick to the old roads. Stick to the roads that are well-traveled. They're the ones that lead you to the places you want to go. Go by these well-traveled paths and you're going to find your way, right? In our culture, we are not real good at that. We are a culture right now that will dismiss the old roads for a new idea without defending any of it. We'll just do it. And so we live in a golden age of skepticism where if I were to tell you something that I believe is true, you would say, not to me, or you would, not maybe you wouldn't, but you know, we, we would say, you can't declare to me what is true because we live in a time where we encourage each other to come up with your own truth, live your truth, which is absurd when you think about it on its surface because what if your truth and my truth are in diametric opposition to each other? Are they both still true? And if so, what do we even mean by the word true? Is there such a thing as absolute truth that has nothing to do with how I feel about it? It just is. And what happens if we get rid of the concept of absolute truth and we say, you know what? You can just have your own truth and I'll have my own truth and there just won't be any, any absolute truths at all. In fact, we will put a ban on absolute truth claims. The rich irony of that whole approach is that it is such an absolute truth claim to say there is no absolute truth, right? You see that, right? You see the inconsistency of that to declare there is no such thing as truth except the truth that there is no truth. Now you've kind of talked yourself into this weird little knot, right? But you see it. For one person to question another person's truth, though, in our culture right now can be like the worst offense you commit against each other. The problem is, when you start doing that, and you start saying, I have my truth, you have your truth, part of what we're doing is we're dismissing history, is we're dismissing what has come before. We're dismissing the old roads, and we don't realize when we're doing it that every generation has done the same thing. Every generation, C.S. Lewis has a term for this. He calls it generational snobbery. It's the sense that our generation is the only one who sees things clearly, and we're the only ones getting it right. We're the only ones who are enlightened. That's the culture we live in. And it's something that none of us are exempt from. We all are in the culture of our age. We're all philosophers. We're all theologians. You may say, I'm not. Okay, but listen, you have a view of God 
that you function according to. You may have never thought about it, but when it comes to the ultimate meaning for the existence of your life, you have a philosophical and theological framework for how then to approach living. And the way you can find out what that is is just look at what you do with your time, look at what you care about, look at what you invest time in, look at what you avoid, look at what you give yourself to, look at the ultimate aims and pursuits that you're after. Every one of us has a functional philosophy of the meaning of life, even if we've never thought it through. And we're living by it every day. It's why we choose this and not that. It's important then, that's a lot of preamble, it's important then to note the reason why Philip follows Jesus. And it's because Jesus is anchored in ancient faith. Jesus makes sense to Philip because he is the one that Moses and the prophets spoke of long ago. So you see it in the text, right? You see that Philip's main appeal to Nathanael is that he believes Jesus is the one Moses and the prophets wrote about. God's people had been expecting Jesus' arrival for millennia. And so what this means is Jesus is not some shiny new magnetic leader with fresh ideas about how to live your best life now. That's not what Jesus is doing. In our culture, we are making it up as we go. And we're replacing ancient faith with fresh, but often empty, inspiration. And the shelf life for a new, inspiring idea is about as long as it takes to come up with another one. And they come and they go. And just test it. Just, if you're on social media, just go, go you know how like on Facebook, if you're on Facebook, it'll, it'll sort things by year, and you can go back. Just go back to 2013, if you were on there then, and see what mattered to people. It's different than what matters today. And what matters today will be different than what matters eight years from now. I'm pushing on this because I really want us to see that all of us are, are affected by the culture that we live in. All of us are, are challenged to, to really figure out on what basis do I believe something is true. The biblical model for discipleship is not inventing new and fresh ways to be a spiritual person. The biblical model for discipleship is following Jesus, not inventing a new way of living. It's yielding to an ancient way of living, not a, not, not, not a new one. It's, it's yielding. It's, it's standing on sacred ground where much has happened before and beneath. And we're not controlling the narrative but we're yielding to a world that is underway where Christ is king. That's what it means to be a Christian. It has very little to do with being good and not being bad. It has everything to do with trusting in the finished work of Christ on our behalf. This is straight gospel this morning, by the way. So if you're here and you're wanting to know what Christianity is, maybe you're here and you, because it's a new year and one of the resolutions is I, I want to tend to the spiritual part of my life. I'm really glad you're here, and that's what we're talking about. Um, we're talking about what does it mean to be a Christian. And so I want to reason with you in this. Because when it comes to faith in Christ, we're not talking about a Jesus that we can shape around our desires. He's an historical figure. He really lived. He really died. He really 
rose from the grave. He is God who came to us in the form of a man in order to live in our place, to die in our place, and to defeat the grave, and to give those who believe in him life in his name. In fact, at the end of John's gospel, where our text is from, John has this moment where he stops and he makes eye contact with the reader. And he says this, he, he, he says why he wrote the gospel. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples that are not written in this book, which I love that statement. There's just a whole lot John left out, and this book is pretty amazing. And he said, but these are written that you may believe. So these words that we just read, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's why John wrote this gospel. The gospel is not primarily a self-help thing. It's not primarily concerned with us being happy, even though joy is part of the gospel. The gospel is about recognizing that you have a maker. You're not an accident. You have a maker. You have somebody who made you, and you were made for a relationship with him since before the foundation of the world. And that relationship was broken. It was broken by sin. It's broken by sin that you and I own. Because here's the heart of sin. What the heart of sin is, is it's the denial of God's holiness and God's right to declare to us who we are and who we are to be in his presence. He has a right to that as our maker, right? And what we do what sin is, is sin is claiming back that authority for ourselves. That's the essence of it. It's saying to God, you don't get to be God, I get to be God. And so entrance into true faith then involves something we did earlier in the service. It involves repentance. And this was John the Baptist's message. This is why people were coming to him, because he was saying, repent, because the kingdom of God is at hand. Right? You can see how a culture that encourages us to invent our own truth in the interest of self-fulfillment is diametrically opposed to John's message because instead of repent, the message is feel good about yourself. And instead of the kingdom of God is at hand, the message is this is your time. Do what you will. The best news in the world is that we are not left to invent our own truth. We're not left to invent our own truth. Why is this the best news in the world? Because when we invent our own truth, we end up floating in the air, untethered to anything of substance or meaning. Because saying every truth is equally credible is another way of saying none of them are. And that can't be. It can't, and we know it can't be. Inventing and following our own personal truth may look like a path to freedom when in fact what it is, it's a path to nowhere in particular. And the only purpose it serves is to give us permission to indulge our appetites, which honest people will tell you that often just leads to pain. So in moving to Nathaniel now, do you feel like you're floating in a confusing world of moral and philosophical ambiguity. I think that describes our culture, moral and philosophical ambiguity. There's hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
there's an anchor. An anchor, not anger. There's an anchor set deep in ancient stone. And so we see this in the way Jesus interacts with Nathaniel. So we've talked about this kind of floating in the ether, making up the philosophy as we go, trying to invent truth and figure out what's what. With Nathaniel, he's a skeptic. And he's a reasonable skeptic because what he's just been told is that the long-awaited Messiah has come and his brother just met him, right? So if any of us said that to each other, it would be reasonable to say, did you, (laughs) you know? But what happened with Nathaniel? What happened with Nathaniel is Jesus saw him. Jesus saw him. He was noticed. He was, he was, he was known to Jesus. Earlier this week, uh, I was feeling particularly burdened by something. Uh, something that was just weighing on me a lot. And I got home from work and I sat down my backpack and I pulled up a seat at the kitchen counter to process a little of this with my wife. And as we talked, my son came over And he put his arm around my shoulder and he gave me a hug. And I thanked him and I said, what was that for? And he said, I saw you come in and you looked stressed, so I figured I'd give you a hug. The hug was nice, but being seen was the real gift, right? Knowing that I was was seen by him. Someone was paying attention to me. Somebody was reading me. Somebody was responding, responding to me, even though I didn't ask for it. I love how the text of scripture here omits what Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree. Omissions in scripture are invitations to the imagination, right? If there's something, a detail that is not there, it gives you permission to wonder about what happened. Kind of like the rich young ruler who walks away sad and then that's just the end of the story. Makes you wonder, like, what did he do with the sorrow? What came of it? The omission in here is that Jesus sees Nathaniel and the fact that he, he mentions this to Nathaniel, I saw you under the fig tree. It, it breaks open a new kind of faith for Nathaniel. Whatever that exchange meant to the two of them, it took Nathaniel from being a skeptic to being a believer. It was something where Nathaniel had to say, oh, you know, that that changes things. We don't know what he was doing. Maybe he was sinning. Maybe he was praying. Maybe he was thinking about some kind of a burden. We don't don't know. Uh, What we do know is that Jesus saw him, and what we also know is that Jesus that saw Nathaniel sees us, and he knows us. Nothing is beyond his insight, nothing. And though we don't know what Jesus saw, Nathaniel did, and he responded by believing and by following Jesus. And by saying, you must be, you must be the son of God. Listen, each one of us here is fully known by God. Jesus wasn't doing something special with Nathaniel that he doesn't do for everybody else. We're known by God. He knows the number of our days. He knows what we will face He knows what we have done. He knows what we have pursued for comfort and what we have pursued for meaning. And he will not turn us away. He doesn't turn Nathaniel away for being a skeptic. Instead, he says, come and follow me. 
stick to the old roads. Where do they lead? Jesus alludes to it here at the end of this passage. It leads back to the promise that God made to us when we first sinned against him in the days of Eden. And that's this, that God would crush evil and that he would restore a right relationship to himself for us, that he would do this. Nathaniel believes Jesus because Jesus knew his past. But Jesus tells him, that's nothing compared to what you will see as my disciple. You will see the heavens open and the angels descending on me. And this is any disciple's story, right? This is the story of anybody who becomes a believer in Jesus Christ. In the beginning, we see enough. We see enough to be moved to faith. The Holy Spirit gives us eyes to see and awakens life in us, spiritual life in us. But we understand very little in those days compared to what there is to know. And as we grow, we learn. And part of what we learn is how little we know, right? But we grow and we learn and we're always moving in the direction uh, that the day will come when we are with him forever and everything will be made clear. That's the trajectory for the believer, The reference Jesus makes to the angels descending is actually an ancient allusion, another one, to Jacob's vision in Genesis of a ladder descending from heaven on which angels descend and ascend. And what that vision is about is it's confirming that God is not distant. He's not away. He's actually right now interacting with his people. There is a connection between the kingdom of God and here. And God is at work in the lives of his people. And what Jesus is saying is, yeah, I'm that ladder. I am the connection. He is the means by which God is at work in this world. And his work is a saving and redeeming work. Jesus sees everything in your life. Everything. You can't hide a thing. He sees it all. And he knows everything about you. And he came to be the ancient fulfillment to God's ancient promise to restore a people to himself. And he's done this. He's done it through his life and through his death and his resurrection. The work is done. It's finished. The work of Christ in your life then, and this is the good news, did not begin the day you first considered it. God's work in your life didn't begin the day you first thought about him. We have a standing with him. We are actually standing near a grave spiritually, and it's an empty one. It's an empty tomb. And the story goes on. Whatever we see Jesus doing in this life, in our life, however small, however significant, he's telling us this nothing compared to what you will see for all eternity. When he rules and reigns over the new heavens and the new earth, where there's no more mourning, crying, death, tears, or pain, where the old order of things has passed away, and behold, all things have been made new. And that's where all of this is headed. That's where the ancient road goes. And so from today's text, Jesus beckons to us all, like Nathaniel, follow me. And in that process, he says, I see you. And the question is, how will we respond? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the backgrounds of the people that you call to be your apostles and your disciples in scripture, that they are not the best and the brightest and the most righteous and the most put together and the most educated and the most wealthy, 
but they are common. They're common people. Thank you that that's how you work, that you work through ordinary means. Thank you that you don't turn away the skeptic, but that you call us to follow you and to follow the ancient road, the road that leads us to the new heavens and the new earth, the road that along the way has a cross and an empty tomb. Father, thank you that you are active and at work. Thank you that we're not having to make this up as we go, but that the call to be a Christian is the call to respond to something that has its foundation in eternity uh, and not just in something we're considering for the first time. So Lord, give us a humility as we approach you this year, as we follow you, as we grow. Uh, those of us who, who know you and walk with you, who are your disciples, that you would grow us, mature us, sharpen us, strengthen us, humble us, break us. And uh, Lord, call, call your people to yourself. Uh, we know that you delight to do this, and so we're thankful for it. Thank you for the picture we have of you doing that with Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel and all the others. You are merciful and you are kind and you are loving and you are our God. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.